Turn into the back of our books of praise to Lord's Day 51. Going through the Lord's Prayer. Our question is, what is the fifth petition? And the answer, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined, wholeheartedly, to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in the Lord, a couple weeks ago we celebrated the Reformation. It's fitting that we come to Lord's Day 51 around this time because through the Reformation, God reminded his people that our entire salvation is based on one thing his grace. Even seeking his forgiveness has nothing to do with our request, but his work in us. And the Catechism reminds us of this moment in history, partly because it's a historical document that was written at that time. And we hear the hope of the author of the Catechism in the explanation of this petition. God will not hold our sins against us. God will not hold against us the evil that still clings to us. We, the wretched sinners, are contrasted with the exceeding greatness of the love of God and causing us to share in the righteousness of Christ. The reason we remember Reformation Day is not because of the greatness of the Reformers, but the greatness of God in reminding his people of his grace. So the best way to honor and remember the Reformers is to remember the goodness and the kindness of our God in sending us our Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives sins. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, forgive us, O Lord. First, we're going to look at God's free gift, God's free gift of grace in Jesus Christ on the cross, and second, grace upon grace, God's free gift in Christ works itself out in our lives so that we also forgive one another. The troubles of life Apathy, even an unhealthy focus on other doctrines, can cause us to forget or to diminish this central teaching of grace, the forgiveness of sins, which is the foundation for the entirety of Christian doctrine. While we may worry about money, about taking care of our families, meeting budgets, More, argue about the best way to submit to the Ten Commandments, worry about our worship practices, work through the best way to understand fundamental doctrines. All these things do not matter if our hearts are not moved to pray this petition to God. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven 
our debtors. We fundamentally rely on God's gift of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that love is expressed in our willing, patience, love, and forgiveness toward one another. We naturally forget this and we must continue to be reminded. The first angel or pastor in the book of Revelation is warned about losing his first love. He's so careful to keep the church pure, but he forgets the greatest matters of the law, mercy and justice. He forgets the fundamental grace that is foundational to the work of God and his servants. And in forgetting, he's no longer moved by the overflowing love toward the God who loved him and toward the neighbor whom God has chosen to love. Paul calls his work the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. His work is to encourage people to pray this prayer with the confidence that God does forgive sins. He does this through the word of Christ crucified. He does this through the signs of the baptism and the Lord's Supper that point us to that same overflowing and free love of God. All these central things are supposed to remind us about what this prayer is about. Why we want to continue to pray. Pray this prayer. Forgive us, O Lord. And we're encouraged in these things to know that Christ really does forgive all sins freely and without any of our own work. He covers them for the sake of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This request itself is ultimately part of God's work of reconciliation. He comes to us and moves us to pray this prayer. And we come to him not for the first time, not for the second, but for the thousandth time upon many times, approaching based on Christ's blood. As John says, for those who sin, we know that we have an advocate before the Father, a propitiation. Propitiation, an emblem of the work he did for us. The Greek word for propitiation goes back to the structure of the temple. And it's used of of the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was set before God. Christ is our living mercy seat whom we may continually come to for mercy. Christ's work of reconciliation can be summed up in three different parts. Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Just as we depend on Christ for bread, for our daily dependencies, so we depend on him for our spiritual life. We recognize that in ourselves we cannot have spiritual life because of the sin that remains in us, and so we must continually come to God in repentance. There's a certain sense where there's there's a beginning to that. I turn away from sin, But the Christian life is a continual turning away from sin and toward God. In ourselves, we can do nothing good. Now, it's interesting to to think about this for a moment because Adam, before the fall, had to depend on bread just as we do. We just prayed, or we, we just studied, give us this day our daily bread. 
But Adam did not need to seek the forgiveness of God. That's a reality that only can come after the fall. That's why the catechism casts us in such a horrific light, wretched sinners. And the catechism witnesses to the teaching of Scripture here. While thanks be to God we are no longer counted as sinners, we do habitually sin. He who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, from John's first letter. By using this sort of language, the catechism recognizes that there is a part of ourselves that we must put to death. As John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And the process of killing sin is repentance. We must continually recognize sins in ourselves. The word of God comes to us day by day and shed lights on, sheds light on new, at least to us, new ways in which we like to evade the command of the Lord. What God wants from us and works in us through his Holy Spirit is the prompt recognition of the pride, envy, lust, and greed that remain in our hearts, the evil lust that the New Testament so often speaks of. So daily, we come before God recognizing again and again our failures to live according to this holy law. We fail again and again in our pride and our lust. Romans 3 unveils the ugliness of the human heart. No one, uh, no one is without sin, no, not one. And if we can't recognize ourselves in these words, we either don't have enough experience with ourselves and with others, or we have failed to understand ourselves. Paul's point is that this is the common human experience, both of Jew and Greek, of both believers and unbelievers. The difference is that believers recognize that this is their wicked nature and seek the free gift that is given in Christ Jesus. We often look at history and we can't believe the evil that regular run-of-the-mill people get involved in. How did the slave trade happen? How did Christian Britain treat the First Nations so badly? How did Christian Russia become the host for one of the most evil ideologies the world has ever seen? How did Christian Germany cause the Holocaust? And we think, I wouldn't participate. I would have, I, I would have stood against that, evilly, that evil. Statistically speaking, you probably wouldn't have stood against these things. The reality is, as Romans 3 reveals, as the Catechism reveals, we all have these sorts of evil in us. Given the right circumstances, we are the bloodthirsty murderer, the rapist, the whore, and the sodomite. We are fooling ourselves if we think are not. we are not. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John Owen again, be killing sin, be involved in that daily repentance, otherwise you're going to find out that your sin is killing you. 
And so we cry out in our lives again and again, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the good news is that the Lord does have mercy. We pray, O Lord, forgive us, because the Lord, out of his wide and wondrous love, forgives. He does not count these sins against us. He does not count the sin that remains against us. He does not count that our sinful hearts touch our prayers, even our prayers. And he does not count that against us either. He does this for the sake of Christ's blood. And that's why Christ's blood is the most precious thing in the world. And that precious gift was poured out beyond measure for us so that we can drink from the cup of judgment and be safe because Christ died on the cross. And in this, God begins the process of reconciliation. Christ offered forgiveness while we were still estranged from God. While we were still his enemies, he offered forgiveness. Usually we think repentance, then forgiveness, then reconciliation. But Christ offered forgiveness while we were still estranged. Through faith we can come to him and receive all the benefits of the cross. And in him we begin the process of reconciliation. As through the Spirit, more and more sin is uncovered, so that more and more we hate ourselves. The glory of this all is that even while we continue to experience the remnants of our sinful nature in our lives, even while we battle against sin and we're engaged in crucifying that sin, even as sometimes we, we lose in that battle for a day, we, at the same time, in Christ, are fully approved of and fully received into the courts of God. God has fully accepted us in answer to our prayers, even though he knows that we must be renewed and reconciled through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. That brings us to our second point, grace upon grace. The teaching of Christ to pray for forgiveness has an interesting clause at the end, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This seems to fly in the face of of what we've already heard. Isn't God's grace given freely without any of our merit or contribution? But this is not the intent of Christ's teaching in this phrase. Rather, this phrase is meant to encourage the Christian in his confidence that God will forgive his sins because God is working by his grace so that he forgives, is willing to forgive his fellow man. We can tell that this is how we ought to interpret this because the teaching of Christ in Scripture is that our forgiveness of one another is based on Christ's forgiveness. Paul establishes the pattern for the church in Colossians. Forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. This means that this prayer is part of every stage of the Christian life. And the Christian can approach God confidently because by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he has shown forgiveness to his neighbor. 
Martin Luther suggested that those who fail to forgive others do not really even want God to forgive them. They're not looking for forgiveness of a debt. They're looking to excuse themselves, to justify themselves, rather than recognize the reality of their state before God. Because if they did recognize that, they would love to forgive others. While this doesn't take away the difficulty of going through the reconciliation process with others, recognizing this truth is important. If we really do experience God's grace, we will share it with others. It has to come. That's why the scripture uses, the, um, uses plant imagery so often. Plants, good plants, will produce good fruit. It's fascinating that of all the good works we're called to do, it is the one that our Lord singles out as the service that most clearly demonstrates that the grace of God is working in us. This service of forgiving one another most clearly shows to our neighbor, even to us, that God's grace is working in us. It's not how excellent we are at following every little detail of Scripture. It's not about having the best theology or doing the sacraments in the right manner or how much we give our lives to mission. Yes, prayer is the most important part of thankfulness, but we can't judge the heart. It is the act of a willingness to forgive that most expresses that work of God in us, that we are hospitable to our enemies, even as Christ was hospitable to his enemies. I was recently reminded of this again in a story about a Christian man in Japan. His daughter was raped and killed. And this Christian man had the opportunity to confront the man who had done this horrible thing. So he went to the jail where he was and he talked to him. He confronted him. And through his willingness to forgive, he brought this murderer and this rapist to Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is living out the gospel at its most radical and extreme However, when we think about the immeasurable love and mercy of God, these deeds are small compared to our own estrangement of God. The truth is, we have people who do all sorts of things to us, and we rightly desire justice. God has given us the civil magistrate to accomplish a certain measure of that justice. But as the church, our first desire is to extend the forgiveness of Christ especially to one another. That's, the mark of the, that's a mark of the church, according to Colossians, forgiving one another. Because justice, the punishment for the sin that my brother has sinned against me, has been placed on the cross of Christ. His blood is more precious than my feud. This is the hardest calling of the Christian and is, in essence, 
our sacrifice to Christ, our giving ourselves to one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. It is the ultimate expression of his love. Like God's forgiveness, forgiveness between one another, forgiveness that results in reconciliation, also takes two willing parties. One party must recognize the need for repentance, and the other must recognize the need for, repent, for forgiveness. Problems arise when one party is not willing to forgive or one party is not willing to repent. Therefore, the, the, the catechism doesn't simply say forgive. Rather, it commands the attitude of forgiveness. Sometimes, the reason the catechism uses this sort of language is because sometimes if there's no repentance, it's not possible to, uh, to give that forgiveness because the other party is not willing to receive that forgiveness. So the catechism commands the attitude of forgiveness. Just as Christ is set up as a propitiation for all mankind... While only certain men receive his forgiveness, those who have faith in him, so the Christian is made in Christ a source of forgiveness. As the Catechism says, we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. That's what we need to aim for here. So yes, reconciliation is not complete between two parties if there is no forgiveness or no repentance. But even so, as Christians, we are called to a full commitment to forgiveness. And that can sometimes be really hard when there's no repentance or vice versa, when there's repentance but no forgiveness. Recognizing this and pursuing this helps us avoid the seeds of bitterness that can rise up toward our neighbor. Even if my neighbor does not repent or does not forgive, I am still to have this wholehearted commitment to forgiveness. This also helps work through the fact that there are people who are more sensitive and less sensitive in the church people who are very conscientious and not so conscientious, people who are more advanced in spirituality and less advanced, the stronger and the weaker, those who love to study and those who love to do. So even if our brother is not repenting and, might, and we might confront him and he does not do the right thing in our eyes or even does not recognize the right thing, we are still fully committed to forgiveness we might have to establish certain boundaries between our neighbor and us, but we need to look into our own hearts and we're still fully committed to forgiving him. We must avoid pettiness in this. We can often understand the importance of forgiveness in the big things, but it's often the little things that can slowly pull us away from the beauty of the church life that's described in Colossians 3. People feel offended for all sorts of reasons. We must recognize that at least part of this is our pettiness. 
We tend to prioritize ourselves, and we're very petty gods, demanding recompense for all sorts of sins against us, perceived or otherwise. There's a victim culture in our world that we must be careful about participating in. People can form little churches of the aggrieved within the broader local church. That's one pitfall. At the same time, be careful not to be callous toward others' needs. Sometimes sins that are never dealt with are covered up and become a fly in the ointment. So all appears to be peace without any true reconciliation. This can happen in marriages, families, friends, and churches. It's better to speak and risk breaking the peace than to to continue in this way. Unconfessed sin, a failure to repent, can pull the individual away from God, can destroy an individual, and it can also destroy families, churches. The best way, and all of the scripture speaks to this, is if you sin against someone, quickly and promptly seek forgiveness. If someone sins against you, seek to address that as soon as possible. That being said, allow the Spirit to work in your own life and in that of your brother. God is the one who brings reconciliation, not you. Beyond that, rely on the Spirit of God through His Word. Seek discernment on when to allow love to cover up an offense, when to pray for your brother, when to confront your brother within you, and this will strengthen your understanding. And I view forgiveness in an unbelievable, impossible way. God offered you forgiveness while you were still his enemy. So let that fill your whole life as a son of God or as a daughter. That's the grace that allows you to stand. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son. Again, verses 4 and 5.